What are your fears? You know, up until recently, I would have said death. In fact, I've had a what I believe to be an entirely rational and healthy fear of death since I was five or six years old. I get scared about, about something happening to my kids um, and for them not to be able to fulfill, you know, the most of what this precious gift of life that they've been given has to offer. Imagine it's your funeral then. Mm. How would you like to remember it? almost no longer care because if while I'm here on this earth I'm being a good friend to those around me and I'm trying to live life in a way that gives me contentment and satisfaction I'll do that for as long as I'm here and when I'm not here anymore then it'll fade away like it's going to and it doesn't really matter So let's not keep you waiting any longer. This is Lead Podcast. I hope you're listening. I should ask you this, Estefan. Uh, Amin and I both have a migrant and a refugee background. Where does that sit in the list of priorities of the governments at the moment? So at a state level, it's really hard because um, most of the levers sit federally. Um, and from a federal perspective, I actually, I actually think the politics on this is changing. And I mean, uh, I remember, I'm going to say, ten years ago, we increased the the refugee intake from now is it thirteen thousand seven hundred and fifty to eighteen thousand seven hundred and fifty a year. And you think, geez, that doesn't sound like many people. Um, but at the time, it ranked us as I think either the top or second top um, per capita intake in the world. Um, notwithstanding, you see mass migrations to neighbouring countries. Um, we're talking here about that sort of conscious humanitarian choice to take in refugees. Uh, and certainly during the noughties um, and uh, children overboard and Tampa and all those things that happened, you know, um, it's around 2001, it's a 2001 election. Um, uh, it's certainly spoke to people's fears um, about uh, migration and it's interesting migration is um, and again the last time I saw numbers on this was quite a while ago but um, even new migrants tend not to have that favorable a view about other new migrants um, it's now that's that's something that perception may have changed but I actually think that post Afghanistan now and post certainly Russia Ukraine um, that Australian attitudes towards refugees I think would have significantly improved um, and it yeah I my personal view is is very much more in favor because um, so I'm somebody that moved to the Barossa about 12 or 13 years ago, right? The Barossa is the most amazing place. But there are fifth and sixth generation people that have lived there in their entire lives who really don't appreciate how amazing the place is that they live. But the Barossa is somewhere that attracts people, right? And the wine industry attacks, pe attracts people from all over the world to come and live there. And the Barossa makes some of the best wine in the world. And so attracts global talent. And these people that come here, they see the, the surrounding and they... they 
get enmeshed in the culture and the history of the place and and almost call it the zeal of the convert but the people that come in with fresh eyes look at the amazing place and help to remind people that have been there for a while how amazing the place is that they live and that's the way I feel about at refugees and new migrants that they come with these eyes and they you don't know how lucky you have it and um, I mean there's lots of data to suggest that that um, migrants or first and second generation um, Australians or Americans from an educational background they, they appreciate things differently and more they work harder and and for instance you only need to go look at at um, out of Virginia and look at horticulture which is a hard industry to be in and it tends to be waves of first generation migrants who are willing to do those jobs and they come in you know and realize that even this job in a tough industry you know working in in difficult weather conditions and and sort of hard labor that it's still a massive step up from from where they come from and so they appreciate it and and but what happens is as second and third generations come through they get used to you know the the quality of life that we have and become complacent about it um and so i think having a continual of stream continual stream of people that come in to remind us how lucky we are I think is a very, very good thing. I'm just also thinking about, um, <clears throat> I guess, the difference between how it works, I suppose, in Europe um, and Australia, and we don't have a European Commission that actually holds us accountable. We don't have an ANZ Migration Commission. Um, it actually goes down to the minister. Yes. So, as a previous minister, what do you think of that? What do you think of that power? Well, the power has to rest with somebody, and it has to rest with a human. And you can create very prescriptive laws, but prescriptive laws always create unintended consequences. But the only way to deal with too heavy a prescription and unintended consequence is to create flexibility and subjectivity. And if you do create laws like that, then you have to vest power in somebody to make those subjective decisions. So I think it's natural, right? It has to be that way. But if you want to talk about... To one person, though, is my question, because that's actually how yeah. we operate here. Well, in, in the end, ultimately, it has to come down to a person, whether that person is a judge or whether that person is a minister. Somebody has to make that decision. Do you think it's working relative to Europe, who have well, a different system? Well, I'd, I'd like to challenge whether it works in Europe. And I speak specifically about um, the Syrian exodus, uh, and and so for instance, Germany, the country that, that I know a lot about, um, Angela Merkel, and again, and, and not a rare act because she's a she's one of my heroes as a politician. She welcomed refugees. She welcomed over a million of them into a country that, off the top of my head, had what 60, 70 million. And the local attitudes towards that changed significantly. So much so that a political party called Allianz for Deutschland, who is a far-right um, anti-immigration political party, um, did really, really well at the next election. Um, and so it... Now, within the European Union, there's obviously free movement, but that's not really what we're talking about here. Um, we're talking about um, people coming from, from more disadvantaged places. Um, it's natural. There's a book by a guy called Nicholas Christakis, um, and it's called Blueprint, um, and he, in it, tries to map societies throughout history and find the commonalities in all of them. And he 
he looks at matriarchal, he finds matriarchal societies, patriarchal societies, people of all different religions all over the place. And one of the key things that he finds in every single societal grouping is the in-group and the othering of the out-group. It happens in, he says, in every single society he's been able to find. Um, and in-group bias um, is inherent, it's natural, and it's evolutionary and comes from a time when there wasn't enough food. So you and your group look after yourself first and you have to fight the other guys because they're trying to steal the food and there's not enough food to go around. And so that sort of racist, anti-immigration, nationalist kind of tendency is something that's, that's in us. And the more we progress as a species and the more enlightened I'd like to think we're becoming, the more we're able to challenge those inherent biases in ourselves and the fact that um, the world actually does now have the capacity to feed itself, even with the 8 billion people or whatever that we've got, that maybe those attitudes will now change. Um, but it's inherent. And um, But is it good enough? No. Uh, but um, it's also... It's quite interesting. It's one of the stances that the new Liberal government, the Marshall government, took, was we were going to be unashamedly pro-population growth. Now, put aside refugee versus migrant for a second. Jay Weatherall and the former Labor government weren't. He was unashamedly small population growth. And he did feed into people's fears around not having infrastructure provision, around people stealing jobs, um, which um, I think COVID has really challenged. Um, and and he fed into a popular opinion within South Australia. Now, we knew that the majority of the opinion was against population growth, but we still pursued it because we knew that it was warm and, and outward-looking and worldly and actually would help our economy. Um, and you also infuse South Australia with global talent. Um, and, yeah, it... And the, the thing is, we were just starting to get success right when COVID happened and it would I would love to have had this sort of counterfactual where COVID doesn't happen and we actually would have seen a, a high population growth in South Australia um, and the difference that that would have made but it's now and it's everywhere so I can give you some exceptions Italy's actually got a falling population um, and so there are places there that are genuinely trying to attract people uh, but um, you know uh, American attitudes are not great um, you know European attitudes in many places aren't great I mean post Second World War for instance um, Germany took in a heap of Turkish migrants to come and rebuild the country and then Germans kind of expected them all to go home and they didn't and you know it created significant tension and um, but uh, yeah I, in terms of what is a better system unless we move away from nation states into a one world government um, I don't know how to solve that problem and I think that the negatives around creating a UN led one world state would outweigh the positives um, that's a good segue to COVID hmm. so you were part of the government then yes um, and COVID hit and this is the first time a government dealing with a pandemic what was the what was the common feeling going around that time? So it, it 
a little bit of disbelief in the early stages because, and we knew this thing was coming, and all of a sudden there was a, a woman called Nicola Sperrier who um, the Premier invited to come to Cabinet meetings and she would brief us on this thing that was happening. And, you know, we all kind of understood it at the periphery, but there's been plenty of, of global disease that's never really come to Australia. You know, we think of ourselves as clean and green and a bit safer. Um, and, and you think Asia, for instance, has to do with pandemics of late a lot more than, than what we have. And, and, you know, for instance, you still see um, in parts of Asia the common wearing of masks as people use public transport to go about their daily life. And you think, hang on, and maybe part of that's about air pollution is as much as it is about disease, but um, it seems quite foreign here. Um, but it it basically, over the course of, I'm going to say, four to six weeks, completely changed the rule book. So we were in a situation where we were, you know, trying to rebuild our economy to really reset South Australia as being more entrepreneurial, more risk-taking, high-growth, um, uh, and change the culture of South Australia from being that sort of inward-looking, um, uh, risk-averse culture into to one that was more progressive. Um, and then all of a sudden this thing hits. And the, the, the natural inclination of Liberals is to want to save money and balance the books and all those kinds of things. That goes out the window. And it's basically, okay, we don't know how bad this is going to get. Here's what we think how bad it could get. We have no choice but to spend now, uh, and that that didn't come that naturally to us in the early stages. But Stephen Marshall and it, it you know, I talked before about um, electing people with character. Um, the way he managed through COVID, especially in the early stages of COVID, was amazing, um, and he basically took this hundred and ten thousand person bureaucracy and focused it on this one goal in a way that it really hasn't had, I don't think, ever. And the public service responded. But he was across detail and helping to make things move, um, you know, and giving his entire, you know, life over to this thing, even more than just being Premier for that period, um, was quite amazing to watch. But it's also the normal rules of politics were suspended. The media... And the advertiser especially made a very conscious decision to be pro-government and they would faithfully report um, what they were being asked to report and they were very forgiving, especially in those early stages of uh, where um, you know there could have been disagreement over, over decisions that were made. And the opposition in the early stages, very much to their credit, um, came on board and said we back the government and early COVID we were able to get so much done because of um, bipartisanship but also the media played their part too and what that did then is is helped to increase because we're actually seeing a decrease in trust in institutions across democracies around the world and that's a bad trend early COVID reversed that trend and as much as there's a group of anti-vax people who don't trust the government um, that's very much a minority. But it was amazing to me that the Premier could say something at a press conference that morning and 80 to 90% of people would follow his advice by the next day. That is amazing. And what's beautiful about what we did in South Australia is that we actually had the lowest level of legal restrictions in the country, but the highest levels of voluntary compliance. And 
the two things kind of worked hand in hand because unlike Victoria we didn't have policemen going around you know finding people for doing silly things people had greater trust that there wasn't this heavy handed um, sort of police state that was coming over the top of them this was a thing that we were all in together and we all just need to do our bit and it was it made me really really proud of my government but also of my state um, and we did do it better than anywhere else in the country and um, it was an amazing time um, and a lot of those early decisions stood us in good stead for a long time but in the end you know we were talking before about the truth and, and complacency and all those things I think one of the things that led to our election loss was that um, we managed to shield people from uh, worse circumstances both economically and on the health front and in the end part of um, the government's downfall I think was being a victim of that success that when we did open up borders and we did let COVID in in a controlled way that people were hang on we kind of liked it the way it was before the problem is with the way it was before is that it was unsustainable both from a health and an economic standpoint at some point you know you can't keep yourself shut off forever we were ready as ready as we were ever going to be and um, yeah it was the best advice at the time quick one can you please take a second and follow us on any platform you're listening from? It will help more than you know. Thank you. Some people say that the decision the government made right before Christmas mm -hmm. to put everyone into sh lockdown yep. cost them the election. Yeah, and that's and, and as someone who's actually currently undertaking the review into the election, <laughs> it's something that, um, that Jordan, who's doing the review with me and I, are going to have to turn our minds to. Um, yes, and uh, but having said that, it was the right decision at the time. It's still the right decision today, notwithstanding, uh, even even with the Omicron variant coming on. And if you look here, the published stats last time I looked at them showed a fatality rate of less than 0.1 or 0.1 um, of confirmed cases, and that fatality rate is basically the same as a flu season. And that, to me, is a phenomenally good result. Notwithstanding all of the, the, the death and, the, and the, the heartache that comes with it, um, uh, yeah, to be able to, to, to have that kind of result um, is about as good as we could hope for. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> maybe sometimes, I guess, the game is more important than the players, in a sense. Yes. It's not, you know, you have to look at it from an infinite I think game perspective, you know, it's not really about like sure losing the elections, but I think where people would be had that did not been made. Um, and are you personally, are you quoting Simon Sinek then? A little bit. Um, and the other thing is, yeah, it was a pretty, I think, uh, critical decision. And I actually met a few people who've had to shut down their businesses and whatnot, and they're really upset about it. Yeah, and it's. It, it, because you have to make decisions, and I often found this, that you have to make decisions on what's best for the m biggest number of people. Yeah. There is no decision where you can do the best by all, everybody. 100%. They're always compromised decisions. Um, and uh, a sacrifice. And the yeah. way I looked at that decision personally, for me, it was, um, you know, we've been running at this for a while. We've all made our sacrifices. Mm -hmm. And if this one time you had to make a sacrifice, 
um, I guess in a way unfortunately it was certain the group of people mm-hmm. um, but had he not made that sacrifice but then I there, to ask what would have been but there were other sacrifices so right. um, and uh, what was interesting um, uh, about that time was um, uh, because the sacrifice then would have actually just been borne by future generations who have to pay back debt uh, and but life isn't always fair and I think about being in business and the negative externalities that come at you. So for instance, I read today that um, there's been fragments of foot and mouth disease material that's come into the country. If that comes into Australia, um, you know, they, they predict up to $80 billion worth of economic damage. Whose fault is that? Who do you blame? And everyone wants to blame because it's much easier to do that, but in the end, like, sometimes life isn't always fair. I look at, at the moment in the, in the pork industry, they're, they're dealing with Japanese encephalitis or encephalitis, however you say it. Um, that's potentially going to wipe out about 10% of the pork industry. Now, those farmers are going to do it really, really tough. Um, there are so many things that come at you externally that knock you around in business. Um, you know, you can only control that which is in your power to control. And I think the only difference this time is the fact that you can directly line it back to a government decision. Uh, and so, you know, people sort of go, well, hang on, you're the one that did that to me. Well, actually, no, the coronavirus did it to you. Um, we, we're just trying to make the best of that situation. Just a couple of final questions, I think. Um, you went through quite of a hard time with everything that happened recently. So faced a lot of different adversaries. What did you learn from that? Um, it took, yeah, go on, keep going. I guess if, if you were to sum up the things you've learned into a lesson and, and share it with someone else, yep. what would that be? Um, so is the ability to put aside ego. Biggest lesson that I've learned. And I have one and will always have one. Um, and part of that's not bad. It's sort of, you know, pride can drive you to want to do better and strive. And that's a good thing. But um, ego could have kept me in politics, but learning to deal with it um, has allowed me to leave. And my older brother, and he loves this quote, um, he thinks he's very deep. He said, and it, <laughs> it was a clumsy way to say it. He said, Steph, he says, now you get to be loved by a few rather than just be scum to the many. And what he meant to say was, um, you know, uh, and as a family, they, like they will tell stories of, of how absent I was when I was off being a minister and how much they really enjoyed me being back. But also not even, you know, I was there at times, but like I, I kind of stopped relaxing, stopped laughing, stopped engaging because you're off in your own little world and there's all these things you have to deal with. Um, and, you know, and so that sort of lost me for a while. And I care a lot more now about looking after those closest to me then I worry about the opinions of people I will never meet. And um, it's liberating. But I think there's a lesson in that for me and being in public life, there's a very big contrast, but there's the ability for us all to learn it when it comes to social media. And because if you turn off the social media and you don't see the comments, do they ever really happen? And uh, it really doesn't matter if somebody that I'm never gonna meet 
likes me or not. And learning that lesson in the way that I had to learn it um, has been extremely beneficial. And it means now that I sort of am consciously present when I'm with people a lot more rather than um, trying to sort of uh, get satisfaction from some sort of abstract notion of, of sort of public opinion. Um, and I also now care so much more about what I think. Um, and it's that, you know, we all know and love what well, we should love ourselves and believe ourselves to be the most important thing. And um, But we all seem to care so much about the opinions of other people. And, and I had to learn not to care because if I'd have l let it care, it would have, you know, ruined me. But um, the ability then to be able to just go, I like it. I think I'm doing what's right. Um, morality, you know, has some universal characteristics, but there's a lot of it that's, you know, individual and certainly makes me a lot more content. Um, I've got a favourite question. I think I've never actually asked you this even out of the podcast. Um, what are your fears? You know, up until recently, I would have said death. In fact, I've had a what I believe to be an entirely rational and healthy fear of death since I was five or six years old. Um, I used to have nightmares about it regularly. In fact, I saw a, a, a psychologist about it and, and dealt with that anxiety part of it, but that fear's always been there. And maybe it's just my age, and I think, you know, I think. Uh, the statistics show that people actually get happier the older they get and sort of peak happiness is somewhere in your 50s and 60s um, um, but I don't really fear death now in that way it's going to come that's fine but I've sort of learned to accept it and I'm someone who's kind of enjoyed being every age I am I was never really in a hurry to grow up because I've always had th responsibility thrust at me at a younger age I kind of always knew what was coming next. Like I loved high school because it was easier than work. Um, I get scared about, about something happening to my kids um, and for them not to be able to fulfill, you know, the most of what this precious gift of life that they've been given has to offer. I don't worry about their future so much as long as they're around to engage with it. That would probably be the biggest fear. But almost everything else now matters a lot less. Um, success, cool. Failure, just as cool. Um, you know, um, meaningful relationships to me is as much choice as it is luck or anything else. But yeah, I, and maybe that's just part of being a parent. Um, I just look at them and think, you know, I want you to have all the opportunity. And that being cut short would, would you know, um, yeah, that'd be soul destroying. We can totally relate to that. Um, I'm second guessing if I should ask this question, but imagine it's your funeral then. Mm -hmm. How would you like to be remembered? Well, we were talking about it the other day um, because um, 
and again, my brothers and I use humour. Um, my dad's uh, best friend died about eight weeks ago. And it was a real shock to all of us because we've known him. He was best man at my dad's wedding. We've known him forever. We called him uncle. And um, But I didn't get to go to the funeral because I had COVID. Uh, and the other three boys went. And they called me on the way back from the funeral. And they were being nice. Which, you know, because that obviously had a tough funeral. Um, but we were talking about because they sort of lamented that, you know, the eulogy really doesn't do justice to someone's life. Uh, and we were talking about that and uh, my brother Andreas said to me, Steph, you should probably record your own eulogy because I'm just telling you now, we're not gonna do a good a job. Um, and because I'm turning 40 later this year and I was also talking about that speech and I said, look, I'm just gonna have to do it myself because, you know, you guys are gonna be bloody useless. And um, but it, and I used to care a lot more about that and ego and leaving legacy. And you'll notice a lot of decisions politicians make is about legacy, a building or a monument or a legislative reform. And I mean, there are things that I'm really, really proud of. Um, there's a heap of things out there that I'm really, really proud of that most people would never go, oh, Stefan did that. I know, and that's good enough for me. But part of letting go of ego is, is uh, um, I suppose, realizing that in two or three generations no I'm going to remember who you are anyway look at the name of the street that you're on and understand whether you know even the history of the name of the person that's on your street um, and so I almost no longer care because if while I'm here on this earth I'm being a good friend to those around me and I'm trying to live life in a way that gives me contentment and satisfaction I'll do that for as long as I'm here and when I'm not here anymore then it'll fade away like it's going to it doesn't really matter because in the end and so I um, this is quite uh, now three years ago in March was three years in March 18th one of my best friends committed suicide in the Barossa and he was a much loved doctor in the community and my wife worked for their family. Um, they had a have a toy store up in Angerston. And um, I didn't really grieve. I went, to, went back to work three days later after the funeral. And um, But again, the funeral didn't really do justice to his life, right? And um, But I think about him a lot, right? And I think about him with increasingly fond memory. Not as sad anymore, but the sort of the sadness and the pain fades but the memory is still there and like I can still hear his laugh in my head right and that's more important to me than the eulogy and so to the extent that the people that I'm around have fond memories and love in their heart that's as much eulogy as, as is necessary that's actually the real eulogy the speech whatever I agree. I think eulogies personally are overrated, and I don't really think it's the end. I was thinking to get your perspective on that. Um, you've lost your one of your best friends. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that was really the end of his life, his spirit? I mean, I'm religious, right? And and I grew up in a Catholic family, Catholic educated. Um, I was an altar boy for five years, um, and. 
uh, and as a late teenager and then as a sort of in my 20s through apathy moved a bit away from the church uh, my faith came back to me in spades when I had kids it is there is mystery and divinity in children and the concept of new life and we all think we're getting really smart on this planet right we think we're solving all of the problems and science is wicked and, and, and I, I'm not a science denier in any way shape or form but there is still mystery to life and that gives me faith I struggle struggle with the afterlife I desperately want to believe desperately would love the concept of continuing on and I struggle with it every day what's interesting though is that I pray like I believe in God right and I when I think of Ben for instance I think of him in a current present context so subconsciously yes I do um, but my conscious mind challenges that a lot um, but you know before I said I've enjoyed being every age I am I'd love to get to a stage where when I die I'm excited about discovering what's next even if there isn't a what's next um, you enjoy every stage of life and death is part of life and so if you kind of go well I'm excited I'm intrigued I've experienced as much of the world as it has to offer you know my body at that stage hopefully you know won't be in a position to experience some of the things that people at a younger age can do and if that's what's next then let's experience it um, maybe I'll get there and be scared probably but um, I'd like to get to a position where you know there's at least some degree of, of anticipation I think that's a good place to wrap it absolutely I think it's a great time and you've wrapped it up beautifully actually yourself thank you Sir. Thank, thank you very you. much for the opportunity this brings us to the end of another episode thank you so much for tuning in and we would appreciate if you could follow us on whatever platform you are listening from until next time you lead the way <laughs>